This is Photo BizX, episode number 374, and today is a conversation with a photographer who quit photography and says it was the best decision he ever made. <laughs> Interestingly, he's loving his photography more than ever. I'm talking about Dan Milnor, and I feel like this is a conversation that every pro photographer needs to hear. That interview's coming up in just a minute. Are you planning to have a successful wedding and portrait photography business? Join Andrew as he interviews successful photographers and business experts to fast track your success. Welcome to the Photo Biz Exposed podcast with your host, Andrew Helmich. Hey, it's Andrew Helmich here from Impact Images and welcome to this episode of the podcast. If you caught last week's episode, you'll know that I spent the week at the snow, well, four days at the snow with my two sons and my youngest brother. We had a great time away. Interestingly, I had a couple of messages asking, hey, where are you going skiing? Is there snow in Australia? (laughs) So yes, we do have snow in Australia. It does not compare to the snow uh, in Japan or Europe (laughs) and and America uh, for that matter. But we do have snow here. Our highest mountain is just over 2,200 meters. And I can say that last week's conditions were as cold as I've ever experienced anywhere. It was absolutely freezing down there and the snow was fantastic. (laughs) Hopefully I'll get back down again sometime this year. It's also been full steam ahead for us with the school photography photos. We're also back in talks with the sporting team clubs and they're looking for ways for us to be able to photograph their teams, which is fantastic news for us. We haven't pushed for that. They really want it because they're getting asked by the parents, which is really, really cool. So hopefully things are looking better as we get through the cooler months here in Australia. I do hope things are going well for you in your business. I'm not going to dwell too much on the chit chat side of things today because we have got a ton to get through and I'm looking forward to jumping into this interview with Dan Milnor in just a minute. If you didn't catch last week's episode with Amy and Tavis Guild, get back and have a listen to that interview if you are interested in selling large wall art pieces to your portrait photography clients. And you need to have a look at the show notes as well because when I say large wall art, that's exactly what these guys are selling. These are huge wall art pieces custom designed for their amazing clients who must have beautiful expansive homes to be fitting this kind of artwork up on their walls. In that interview, we talk all about what Tavis and Amy share, how they are booking the clients that they are through auctions and silent auctions, but it's not the actual auction winners that they're interested in. Well, they are, but they're more interested in the people attending the auctions. They are the ones that they're going on to target with future promotions. If that all sounds interesting to you, get back and have a listen to that one if you haven't heard it yet. Photobizx.com. Real advice, real strategies, and real ideas to build your photography business. Alrighty, we're just about ready to jump into this interview with Dan. If you are hearing this announcement, it does mean you are listening to the free version of the podcast. And that means I am saving a portion of the second half for premium members only. So that means you won't be hearing the full interview with Dan today. So if you are loving what he's sharing, if you'd like to hear the full interview with Dan, head over and grab a $1 30-day trial membership. You can get access to that at photobizx.com forward slash try. 
With that membership, you'll get full access to the interview with Dan, access to the full interview with Amy and Tavis Guild from last week, and all of the complete back catalogue. I'll send you an invite to join the Premium Members Facebook group, the only thing that's worthwhile on Facebook. (laughs) I'm a little bit biased. And you'll also get everything else that goes along with the Premium Membership for that 30 days for your $1 investment to see what it's all about. photobizx.com forward slash try if you want to learn more about that. Welcome to another great eye for business. It's time for Andrew's special guest. Today's guest is a photo book and creative evangelist. He loves photography, but he rarely does it for paying clients anymore, which he says has led to a more rounded, interesting and better life. He spent 25 years as a full-time photographer, mainly shooting documentary work for newspapers, magazines, and clients. In 1997, he quit photography, but in 1999, he was talked into coming back to work as a photographer. Then in 2010, he quit again, this time for real. And today he works for Blurb, the print-on-demand bookmakers. He lives in New Mexico, one of the United States, with his wife, where he rides bikes, explores, and continues to work on his own documentary projects and create books that potentially no one will see or even care about. I stumbled across him on YouTube while rediscovering my passion for photography and to start shooting more for myself. He's a breath of fresh air, full of positivity, even though he will potentially go against everything you've heard from any other guests I've interviewed. Fingers crossed, this is a positive experience for all of us. I'm talking about Dan Milnor, and I'm truly wrapped to have him here with us now. Dan, welcome, mate. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Wow, I sounded amazing in that <laughs> intro. That's, uh, you know, maybe we should read that again. <laughs> I'll send it to hey. you. I'll send it to you. So tell me, why do you feel that you are a happier, better, more rounded person now that you're not shooting professionally? Oh, man, it's a great question. I just started thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I've thought about it a lot prior to that. But I made a realization a couple of weeks ago that I'd sort of pushed aside since 2010 when I made the decision to really walk away from being a full-time photographer. I became a better person almost immediately. And the reason for that is that being a professional photographer, especially if you're trying to make your own work and not just, you know, sort of content with any assignment that comes along the pike, if you're trying to adhere or hold to a certain standard or style that may or may not have a home in the industry, it's very difficult. And so consequently, you're forced to think about yourself far too much. So the moment I quit photography, which was, I think it was a Tuesday afternoon in 2010, I just said, I'm done. And I deleted my email account, my primary email account. And I suddenly didn't have to think about myself all the time. I didn't have to think about my business. It was like being on the freeway and letting your foot off the accelerator And all of a sudden you can lift back and say, wow, I can take a look around here. And I realized, one, I'd been focused on myself for far too long. And I'd been focused on a very narrow sliver of photography for far too long. I should have been a more well-rounded human being and educated in, in areas that I wasn't. And also just more educated in regards to the creative industry in general. You know, what are designers doing? What are illustrators doing? What are writers doing? Why am I not collaborating with these people? You know, it just was a wake up call of sort of epic proportion. And it's on me because I made the same realization in the 90s when I quit the first time. And then I talked myself out of it. I was like, oh, you know, I should do this again. And I probably should have never gone back from 97 or 99 
I was like a square peg in a round hole of the photo industry. I never really felt completely at home because my philosophy about what I was doing was not typical. And I didn't want to make the pictures that other people were making. I didn't want to make them in the style that other people were making them. And I just kept finding myself swimming in quote unquote wrong direction. And, you know, my colleagues and other folks in the industry were just like, what are you doing? You can't do what you're doing. And I thought, well, you know, I can and I am. And it is a weird scenario to be in when you're constantly in the minority. But yeah, I just took a look around and said, I need to stop thinking about myself so much and start thinking about other people. I don't understand how you had a chance to think so much about yourself if you're answerable to, I guess, an editor. So weren't you focused on the work you had in front of you that you had to submit and get done? Well, it depends on what style of what I was shooting. So I made a couple of realizations very early. So I graduated from photojournalism school in 92. I got an internship at a major newspaper in 93. It took me a year to find an internship. That was like banging my head against the wall. I found an internship in 93. I got very fortunate because it was a big paper. They had good budgets. They had a lot of photographers, but I was rabid. I was so amped on being a photographer and the photo editor realized it very quickly. And it wasn't like I was a great photographer or great intern. It was just that I was rabid and my pictures were in focus and I could talk to people without slobbering over myself. And so I think the photo editor looked at me and said, oh, he's not a liability. Like I can actually give him good assignments. And so I got good assignments. I tried to learn how to be a photographer. And when you're working for a newspaper or a magazine, yes, you are almost entirely beholden to their editorial style, that what the editor wants, the photo editor, et cetera. And so I found very quickly, you know, what I could get away with in the newspaper world picture wise, because we were a very conservative paper and I, I would shoot things. And in the field, in my head, as I was framing it up, I'd say, they're never going to run this. Even if it was a great image, I would say, oh, you know, the higher ups are, this is going to make them nervous. They're not going to run it. And when I went into the magazine world, it was the same thing. I realized very quickly that I was not shooting my photographs. I was shooting their photographs. Can you give me an example of one of those style of images that you saw that you knew they wouldn't run? Oh, yeah, for sure. So the paper that I worked for was owned by uh, one company owned two newspapers. They owned the daily and they owned the afternoon paper. They were fiercely competitive with one another, but we worked out of the same darkroom. So the 20 photographers from the afternoon paper and the 20 photographers from the morning paper, they all worked out of the same darkroom, but they were competing with each other. So it was kind of a cool dynamic and like cutthroat at times and friendly at other times. So the other paper had an intern as well. And so he and I go to lunch one day and he shot the same camera gear that I did. And so I'm driving, we're in my pickup, or you would call ute, I think. And so we're in my ute and we're driving back to the paper and I exit the freeway and we're sitting on the frontage road. And I look over out the passenger side window and I see a guy with a chrome plated 357 Magnum pistol over the hood of his car, aiming it at another driver who's right next to my car. You know, it's America. This happens all the time. So I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is great. So the intern and I, we start fumbling in the back seat for our gear. He accidentally grabs my camera. I grab his, unbeknownst to either one of us. We both blaze away on this scene. And what it was was an undercover drug cop who had found someone who had a, had a warrant out for his arrest. Long story short, the driver's side window of the car rolls down. The cop has his pistol out over the hood of the car screaming. And the guy's like 10 feet away. I could have reached out and touched him. So I'm shooting right there, identify who I am. You know, we both, the other intern and I jump out and it's a good photograph because right as the driver's side window comes down and the cops yelling, like, show me your hands, show me your hands. And you don't show your hands fast enough. 
And the guy's windows were super tinted. So the cop's nervous, right? If you do the wrong thing there, you're going to get shot. For sure. And all of a sudden, these little tiny hands come out the window, and it's a little boy in the backseat. So whoever the bad guy is, or the perceived bad guy, he has his child with him. And that's the photo, are these little hands and the adult hands coming out of the window. So I shoot this, and the other intern shoots it. And we go back to the paper. The other paper ran it, six columns. And our editorial staff said, oh, we're not touching that. That's not going to sell advertising. You know, no one's going to want to come here to play golf if we see this on the freeway. And so they didn't run it. And I was so pissed that they didn't run it. But what I realized very quickly was what you get in the news is not necessarily the news. It is the editorial policy of a very small group of wealthy people sitting around determining what the news is. Not every day. But enough to when you get inside and see the inner workings of a lot of these media organizations, you realize there's a whole different world in there from what you first thought from photojournalism school. And so they didn't run that. A lot of the photos I did, um, I would basically, I worked the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift for a morning paper, which meant that if by 7.30 at night you didn't have your work in, it wasn't going to make deadline. It wasn't going to make the cutoff for them to print the paper unless something insane happened. If a UFO landed on top of the newspaper, then maybe (laughs) you could get a paper in. So what I did is I bought a police scanner and I would leave the paper at about seven o'clock at night and I would drive down the center part of the city to the side of the city that was very much in turmoil with crime and gang activity and stuff. And I was a young photographer. I thought this was important. I thought this was what I wanted to do. Which city are you in? I was in Phoenix, Arizona. And I would go down there and I would turn the police scanner on and it was mayhem. It was absolute mayhem. It was murder, you know, attempted murder, gang fights, domestic violence, house fires, drug deals. And I would roll on these crime scenes, you know, by myself. And I had a credential, obviously, with the paper. I got to know some of the guys at the police department that would see me over and over again. But oftentimes I'd roll up on a scene before anybody else was there. You know, I saw scenes where... Guys took six rounds from a 44 mag point blank in the chest, you know, blown through a wall, bodies everywhere. And I'm shooting and I'm knowing that none of this is ever going to make the paper because, one, the timing was bad. But two, that's not necessarily what people want to see and hear. You know, the newspaper exists for a lot of different reasons. And my experience with and look, my experience at the paper was fantastic. They treated me incredibly well. I met a lot of people that I'm still friends with today. But you start to understand things about editorial policy. And the magazines were exactly the same. And what the reason I quit in 97 to work for Kodak was that at the end of 96, I looked at my portfolio and it wasn't mine. These were all pictures that I had done for other people on assignments. And I'm like, I don't even like this work. This isn't what I would do. And so Quitting the first time and working for Kodak was the only way I found out and figured out who I was as a photographer because I sold all my equipment except for Leica, an M6 and a 35 millimeter lens. And that I just shot for four years. I did my own projects. I did long-term black and white projects the way that I wanted to photograph them on my time with my style. And at the end of four years, I had an array of projects that actually are still some of the best work I've ever done because nobody was interfering with what I was trying to do. And I realized by 99, there was no home for me in photography, at least in the documentary world, because there was no industry left to support that kind of work. 
And I think I saw this before a lot of other people saw it and understood it because, you know, working for Kodak, I was in and out of all the best photo studios in the West Coast, or many of them. And I was watching how other photographers were working every genre, commercial, fashion, advertising, portraiture, automotive, editorial. I was very fortunate. Kodak was a whole nother category of understanding who the best photographers were, how they worked, why they worked that way, who was doing well, who wasn't, who was prepared for the digital revolution and who wasn't. It was an amazing learning experience, but it also taught me, all right, Milner, you're probably not you know, destined for celebrity because there's just no place for what you want to do here. When you're working for the newspaper, one thing I don't know is if you shot those images of, let's say, with the guy, the police holding up, the father with the kid in the back, yeah. do you still own those images or does the paper own those? Paper owns them. So you can't use them as part of your portfolio unless they've been printed? Yeah, no, they own them. And yeah, I haven't even thought about it. There were only a couple of things that I shot during that time at the paper. And I was a three-month intern, supposed to be there for three months. I ended up staying a year and a half and for a variety of different reasons. And then I actually, I left and then came back and I freelanced as a photographer out of the same city for about another year and a half. And I did primarily magazine stuff. In Phoenix, there weren't that many photographers at the time. And so, you know, I was shooting for like, uh, I was shooting spring training, the professional baseball spring training. I was shooting, you know, there were train wrecks and border issues and all that kind of stuff. It was kind of fun at the time. But yeah, most of that stuff, the paper owns everything. The editorial stuff, was all mine. Even though I was shooting for magazines, I owned the copyright. This was prior to there being a big push for rights grabs and work for higher contracts and all the stuff that started to take over very soon thereafter. I don't remember ever having an argument with anyone in the magazine world about who owned those images, even though I was on assignment and they could embargo those images for a certain amount of time. I was the one who owned the copyright, which is definitely what you want. I mean, you don't want anybody else to take your copyright. No, absolutely. So fast forward to today, it sounds like you're more in love with photography than ever and you're still shooting, it sounds like, a ton. So what are you shooting? Like when you talk about personal projects, what are they? So, well, maybe there's a bit of a facade, a bit of a smokescreen because I do spend a lot of time photography, but I'm, now I'm primarily helping other people with their photography, which is a whole different hat to wear. I still do projects. When I left Kodak and went back to photography, I actually shot weddings for about six or seven years. And this was prior to the wedding bubble building up in the United States. I mean, when I left Kodak to be a wedding photographer, you cannot believe how much grief other photographers gave me. It was relentless because if you were in America and you were a wedding photographer, people thought you shot weddings because you weren't good enough to do anything else. And so I didn't know anyone who was a wedding photographer. I came from the photojournalism world. I'd been in you know, Kodak working with professional commercial people and fashion and celebrity portraits. And all of a sudden, another photographer gets to my ear and says, you know, you could be making a lot of money as a wedding photographer. And I was like, you're crazy. No one's going to hire me to do a wedding. And she said, yeah, they will. And they're going to pay you more than you could possibly imagine. So I shot weddings and then I left weddings and went into portraiture and I shot portraits for about seven years. And that was pretty fun as well. Then I decided, okay, I'm done with this. Started working for Blurb, which has been remarkable. The best job I've ever had by far. And then when I do projects now, I love doing projects. I have two ongoing, one here in New Mexico, one in California. But what's changed and what makes it so much more fun is that 
there is no deadline. There's no timeline. There's no pressure. There's no editorial policy. There's no client. There's no conforming to what someone else's idea of the project is. I go and do it. And my projects have changed dramatically in terms of what they look like. And also there's more of a conceptual angle than I would have ever done before. I always looked down on conceptual art photography because I didn't understand it. I came from the journalism world and I thought, you know, reality-based photography is the only thing for me. And I do think reality-based photography is incredibly difficult and has never gotten a fair shake in the art world because the art world just doesn't have an appreciation for it like they do conceptual work. And so now I typically blend conceptual ideas with reportage. And it's a lot of fun. And I'm far more skilled today on things like design, typography, going to print, you know, the materials I'm using, the sort of goals. But I'm also completely content to live in my own ecosystem without ever having to tell or show anyone what I'm working on. And just to give you a little side note, which I think is hilarious, but so I've worked for Blurb for 10 years. And Blurb was one of the first companies that brought print-on-demand technology, at least in the photo book world, to the world, but you know, definitely here in the United States. And we have Eileen Gittens to thank for that. So Eileen comes along, builds Blurb, and suddenly I have the capability, as well as everybody else, to make a single copy of a book. And photographers, because so many people are victims of sort of conformed, learned behavior about what photography is supposed to be or what a photo book is supposed to be or how you're supposed to act or behave or talk as a photographer, I was like, none of that applies to me. And so I looked at this ability to make a single book and I was like, wow, that means if I wanted to make a book for you as an individual, I could tailor this book to you specifically. Of all the people on earth, this book could be designed for you in particular. And I thought, man, that is a really powerful thing to have. Now, the vast majority of photographers are like, you know, I got to print 20,000 copies and try to get famous and make a bunch of money off this book and not knowing how difficult and crazy that idea actually is. But I looked at the addition of one thing and I thought, okay, I'm going to go do projects. When the project is done, regardless of how long it takes to work on it, whether it's two days, two years, 10 years, whatever, I'm going to make a single copy of a book. And that is the only copy ever. And then I'm going to move on and do another project. And so I started doing this. And I probably did 10 projects in single book form, editions of one. And I did it and I was completely content and happy. And I was like, oh, this is great. And photographers would look at the books and they'd go, you know, where can I buy this? Or how many, you know, 10,000 copies did you purchase? Or is it offset? All these different questions. I'd say, no, there's just one. I just did one copy. (laughs) And photographers would go crazy. And then one day I was meeting with someone who works in the art or in the museum world And she said, you know, when you're done with this series, we would like to acquire these for the museum collection. These one-off books. Yeah. And I said, I go, I don't think you want these books. And she goes, yeah, we do. And I go, no, I don't think you want these. I don't think you understand what they are. And she goes, I understand what they are. They're conceptual art books. And I said, no, they're not. And she said, I know you're not comfortable with that, but that is exactly what these are. And that is why we're interested in them. And it was like a revelation to me. I was like, oh, you know, I'm the weak link here because my mindset is so narrow and so conforming to what I'd been taught in photography school that I was like, God, I have to like rethink everything I know about photography, about publishing, about being a creative person in society, what that means, the responsibility it comes with, all of this stuff that I'd never taken the time to consider, I suddenly had time to consider. 
And what's really fun now is all the mistakes I made and then all the knowledge that I've acquired over the last decade, it's fun to share that with people because it literally turns photographers often inside out. Um, I'll give you an example. I did a portfolio review last year and I typically do not do portfolio reviews, meaning I'm not showing work. I'm the one sitting there reviewing the work, right? And so I always tell people, look, I haven't worked as a photographer in a decade. You know, if some kid sits down with a fashion portfolio, what am I supposed to say? Like, I don't know what the fashion industry is like. No idea. But these people I love, I love their organization. And they said, please come and review portfolios. I said, okay. So I show up, you know, they give me a list of people. I have like six people to look at, 20 minutes a piece, typical portfolio review. And so the first person sits down and just immediately starts showing images. And I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. (laughs) I said, why are you sitting here? You know, why am I looking at this? Who are you? Why are you doing this project? What does it mean in the overall? And have you ever stopped and thought about what it means to be a creative member of society? Do you understand what the general public thinks about you and the license they give you because they think that you are unlike them? So in America here, a lot of times creativity is sort of taught out of kids in school. Parents teach it out of people. My father did not like photography. He thought it was a hobby at best. He wanted me to be an investment banker. He never liked photography. And so, you know, he did everything he could to steer me away from it. And I tell you, I admit this portfolio review. And so I would start asking people these questions and they would sit there with their eyes wide open. And suddenly they would like slide forward in their chair and they'd go, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And so... I would start to explain this to them and 10 or 15 minutes into the review, I'd say, do you want to look at work now or do you want to keep talking about this? And all six people said, I don't want to look at work. I want to talk about what you're talking about. And so the founders of the event came over later in the day and they said, can we talk to you for a minute? And I was like, "Uh Oh, here we go. They're going to be ticked that I'm doing this. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I go, I think everybody here is overlooking a foundational idea that is critically important to the survival of the industry, which is understanding what it means to be creative in society, regardless of what your your genre is. Being creative comes with an inherent power that you have to understand and utilize without exploiting to really survive as a creative. And I said, why did you ask? And they said, well, because people came up and said they had the best portfolio review they've ever had, and they never looked at photographs. And I said, yeah, it's not, you know, I said 90% of the people in this room are capable as photographers. They can all go out and complete an assignment, but we're missing the point. And I think that there's a much, much deeper, greater point out there than just pressing the button and trying to make great pictures because we don't live in 1975 anymore. We live in a very dynamic, rapidly changing, you know, literally human changing environment. Our brains have physically changed over the last 15 years based on the internet and technology. And so we have to understand that we can't pander to it or cater to it because we'll go down the rabbit hole, but we have to understand how we've changed as a species. And so it's not just about photography anymore. You can be the best button pusher in the world and not make it because, you know, you can't get attention for what it is you're doing. So it's fun. It's fun to sit in a room full of people who are talented and get them to think about something they've never thought about before. Sure. Is that a measure of success? Like, how do you measure success as a photographer, as a creative? Is it financial? Is it being recognized? Is it having work that's recognized? What's success? 
It depends on the photographer. So one of the best things I ever did was I was an assistant for several years when I first got started. When I first moved to California, I was living in Laguna Beach. I was assisting for probably about four different photographers. I'd started my assisting career while I was still in Austin as a student. And I was assisting for a photographer who literally photographed medical parts with a four by five camera. And it was the most agonizing, torturous experience in the history of the world. And he loved me because he knew I was never going to try to take those jobs. I didn't want to shoot with a four by five. I didn't want to shoot medical parts. You know, we'd shoot four by five and shoot Polaroids and maybe do like two images in an entire day. It was agonizing. And I loved the guy and he liked me, but we both didn't want to do what, what the other person was doing. But success would vary tremendously. I knew photographers who were so bent on being known that they would do things that were so horrible because they couldn't stop themselves. They had to get recognized. Other photographers I worked for that I assisted for hated photography. Some of the best people I worked for hated it. Photography to them was nothing enjoyable. It was problem solving. And they were really good at problem solving. A client would come in, whether it was you know shooting a commercial job for a big sporting brand or shooting an editorial assignment, and it was simply solving the problem. There was never a sense of joy. There was never a sense of exploration. They were incredibly financially successful. I had other photographers I worked with who just wanted their egos stroked. That was success to them. And then I worked with other people who were never going to make it financially, but the fact that they could afford health insurance was a huge deal. And they were like, I've made it. You know, I'm not, I'm not living without health insurance. It varied for everyone. I never got the gene that wanted acknowledgement. I mean, to me, the worst thing in the world would be to be famous. And I have a funny story about this, if you want to hear it, which has nothing to do with photography, but it's my brush with fame. That's terrifying. <laughs> Far away. Share. Yeah. I never wanted to be famous. You know, I didn't even care if anyone saw my work. I just didn't. I never cared, which is terrible for being a professional photographer. But for some reason, that's what I got stuck with. But when I was in the 90s, I was living in Southern California. And I had long hair <laughs> and I happened to look like, this is what people tell me. I'm not saying this myself. It would be egotistical to say this, but there were two celebrities that I constantly had people coming up to me and saying, you look like so-and-so, you look like so-and-so. And at one point I had long hair and this, one of these people, these celebrities had long hair and everyone said, you look exactly like this guy. So when you live in Southern California and you look like a celebrity, it gets really awkward at times because people hey, will go. He can't beat around the bush. Who was it? Who's a celebrity? So there were two. There was Rob Lowe and Brad Pitt were the two people that people said, you, you know, and it would happen almost on a daily basis. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And in California, people are on the prowl, right? They're always looking for celebrities. So I would walk in a room or a parking garage or an event and I would see people looking at me and I'd be like, oh, no, oh, no, here it comes. And there were a couple of times where it got really awkward. I was in Texas at a restaurant and the waitress walked up. I was with my father. Waitress walks up and she goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're him. You're him. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you. It's you. And my dad thought this was hilarious initially. And, you know, I said, I'm sorry. I don't know who you think I am, but I promise you I'm not that person. And my dad goes, yeah, it's him. It's him. He's a Kung Fu star. <laughs> and so the waitress leaves. And I'm sitting there waiting for the order. And I look over to my left. And in the kitchen, the waitress has gathered the kitchen staff. And she's pointing at me. And they're all huddled behind her. And I said, looked at my dad and I go, we got to get out of here. And she comes over to the table with her notepad. And she says, will you sign my notepad? 
And I said, you know, ma'am, I'm really sorry. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I'm not who you think I am. And she starts wailing in the middle of this restaurant. (laughs) And I said, give me the notepad. And I just like scribbled something on it and got out of there. And I also had to run from a van load of people here in New Mexico one time because they were insane. They were out of their minds. They thought I was one of these guys. And I literally had to run. I jumped over a fence, was hiding behind a tree. And a friend of mine happened to be across the streets, watched me do this whole thing, and which was the worst part of it all. And he, he looked at me and he goes, what are you doing? And I like ducked down and I said, I'm hiding from that van load of people who've been chasing me through downtown. So I just got a taste of what it would be like to be one of these people. And it's not like photographers are going to be at that level. You know, Jimmy Chin won the Oscar last year for Free Solo or two years ago. And you got to tip your hat to that guy because he's put together an unbelievable career. But Jimmy Chin, even though he won the Oscar, is never going to see that style of fame that the celebrity is going to see. But it was so terrifying to me to think about being the center of attention that I was like, man, you know, I'm more built for quarantine than I am for like fame <laughs> as a photographer. I'm happiest when I'm by myself, basically. No, no. When I introduced you, I was a bit tongue in cheek when I said that, you know, you're working on these documentary projects and creating books that potentially no one will see or care about. Is that truly how you feel? You don't care if other people see or love your work? No, it means absolutely nothing to me. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful. If someone looks at my work and says, and this is happening all the time now because of YouTube, I started the YouTube channel like six months ago or whatever, because blurb, long story. I didn't start YouTube for me. I started it because it was part of a work process that I needed to learn. And the response from YouTube has been overwhelmingly positive. I was mentioning earlier, my inbox every day is filled with people. I just answered a whole bunch of these right before we jumped on this call of people saying, hey, I found you. Um, I forget. Somebody just said something really funny, like you're my new spiritual guide for photography or whatever. (laughs) You know, it's nice. If people write me and they say that, I'm always flattered. I always I answer every single email, every message I get. I think it's incredibly important and unprofessional if you don't. So it's not that I don't like it if someone looks at my work and says, hey, but I just have absolutely, I just do not care. If one person sees it, if nobody sees it, because I'm not shooting for the audience. I'm selfish. I'm shooting for me because ultimately it's a riddle or a story or an idea that I am trying to express. And if I can somehow make quality of work to where I look at it and I say, okay, I think I accomplished my goal. I don't need any outside accolades from anyone. And I think the age that we live in, which is so much about the pat on the back, the like button, that is so not who I am as a human being. That's why I'm not on social. I can't stand it. I was on Twitter. That was the last sort of collective thing, which is ironic because the only reason I kept the Twitter account is that seven years ago, Blurb asked me to keep it when I deleted all my social media. I was like, okay, I don't want to be a jerk. If you want me to keep Twitter, I will. Because seven years ago, Twitter was still like, you know, the one program that they thought, hey, this is amazing. It wasn't, you know, pre-Instagram and all that stuff. But, you know, for me to put work out like that and wait for accolades is so foreign to who I am as a human being. Now, the one thing that I do like, that I love, is if I can help promote someone else. Like if someone else has done something that I look at and I go, wow, this is really cool. This is a great project. I will do whatever I can to promote that for them. But I would never take that time to promote myself. Yeah, it's weird. I guess I'm in the minority there. Yeah, I mean, photographers that you meet, are they most surprised that you're not on Instagram? 
oh, everybody's just astounded. I mean, I get it all the time. I've had people look at me and say, I can't find you. Oh my God, I can't find you. What's happening? And then I go, yeah, I'm not on there. And I've literally had photographers look at me and say, well, I don't really want to know you if you're not on Instagram and walk away. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, look again, if you were going to devise a platform that is polar opposite of who I am as a human being, it would be Facebook and Instagram. I just don't. That's not how I'm going to spend my time. I mean, you could argue that Instagram is built for photographers. Oy, yeah, I'm not a fan. Uh, I'm not a fan of the parent company. I'm not a fan of the policies of the parent company. I'm not a fan of the history of the parent company. I mean, just take 2018 alone. If you take 2018 alone and you study what Facebook got in trouble for, the ethical breaches that they had in that single year, it is astounding of what they were able to get away with. And it's happening every month. There's some other thing they're doing. I mean, Cambridge Analytica, obviously for us here in the States with the impact it had on the election in 2016, it goes on and on and on. And to me, if you're using these platforms, you're part of the problem. You can't be on Facebook and complain about political situation in America. It doesn't make sense. Mm. And so I just looked at the platforms. I looked at these big tech giant companies and I said, I don't think these folks are here to like help us. I think they're here to exploit us. Secondarily, there's no possible way that anyone can pay attention to you on Instagram at a level that's going to last. That is not what the platform is about. The platform is about creating basically a phony version of yourself that's palatable to as many people as humanly possible. Because the game that everyone's trying to game on Instagram is volume, it's numbers. It's about thinking a client is going to look at you and say, oh, Look at those following numbers. Those followers are going to be our followers. And I watched Instagram destroy some of the best photographers I have ever seen. I saw it destroy their work and I saw it destroy them as human beings. And by the way, it is still going on. And I watched as that app turned them inside out because believe it or not, a lot of really wonderfully talented artists are incredibly insecure and they're incredibly egotistical. They're competitive to, to like, they're like the Lance Armstrong, you know, love him or hate him. Lance was incredibly competitive. And I think that's one of the reasons he was so good is that he just absolutely detested losing. And so I've seen photographers start out on Instagram and very quickly go down the rabbit hole of just, they're so physically addicted to the platform because it's that instant dopamine cortisol injection of feedback. And I started to see it in myself, not the competitive part, but I started to realize that my default brain space when I was between tasks was defaulting to Facebook and Instagram. And the second I made that realization, I was like, oh, that's not good. That's physically not good for me as a human being. But secondarily, that's not good for my work. That's not good for my mindset. That's not good for the long term because Instagram will go away and there'll be something else that you'll have to jump on and it'll probably be more invasive than than Instagram. So I just said, look, literally when I made that realization, I was standing in a place called Pie Town, New Mexico, which is a little town in the southwestern part of the state. I was standing in the middle of the highway and I was like, oh, this is not good. And I just deleted my Instagram account on the spot. <laughs> and it was just a relief. I mean, I, I, again, it's just not who I am as a human being to spend my time on there. I'd rather read than be on Instagram. So if someone wants to see your work, see what you can do, see what you're producing, what do you do? Send them to your website? 
Yeah, I mean, it's rare that anybody asks me for that now. And typically, I always have printed materials with me. I carry a set of magazines. I carry field guides of the work that I've done. So most of the time when that happens, it's in person. And I pull these things out and people can get it. When you put a printed piece in front of someone, they can tell in less than 10 seconds whether or not you're legit. Um, Most of the time, there's a complete sense of shock that you have a printed portfolio. But the respect level for the printed piece goes so far beyond sending someone to Instagram or sending someone, you know, looking at something on an iPad, it just doesn't have the same impact. Print just cuts through the noise. So I have a website called Shifter, which is shifter.media. And Shifter, again, was not, it's my site, but I built it for reasons beyond me. It was a long story and it's boring, so I'm not going to tell it, but I have this website and there is a photography tab on that website. And so you can see a single basically a single page of images. And if anybody's going to look at that, just know that most of those images are single images that represent an entire story behind it. So if you see a picture from Peru on there, just know that, you know, I made multiple trips to Peru and that there's a whole body of work behind those images, which is not something I can show because there's just too much work. But yeah, that's probably the best place for someone to see my work. I might actually get rid of that tab. I've been talking to my friend who helps me with my website and I might get rid of it. We were actually talking about it last week, but I've been too busy to do anything about it. So I don't know. But you've also got the photo shelter website as well. Yeah. Photo shelter. And again, I had photo shelter because of blurb. And so I spent about six or seven years for blurb traveling nonstop, Australia being one of my favorite locations to end up. And so I'd be, you know, Europe, Canada, U.S., Australia, I'd be traveling and constantly uploading the stuff that I was doing for Blurb. And Photo Shelter is fantastic. I love those guys. I've had a Photo Shelter site for so long. And it was just such a wonderful way to be able to archive and distribute my work. I also used Photo Shelter when I was working, when I was living in California, I was doing all kinds of commercial work. And it was a great distribution method and a way of like licensing work and stuff. So I still have Photo Shelter. I don't really need it anymore. And so the reason why I was thinking about getting rid of the photography tab is the photography tab on my website is linked to photo shelter. And so I don't really, you know, I haven't worked as a photographer in 10 years. I can't imagine technically needing photo shelter. So I thought, well, you know, maybe it's just something else I can sort of streamline. And then the more I think about it, I'm like, do I really want to get rid of photo shelter? No, but I don't know. So yeah, my life's a mess in general. (laughs) I want to ask you about two things before we get too sidetracked and before the time runs out. I want to ask you about field guides and I want to ask you about projects for the listener. But you mentioned field guide. What's that? Yeah, field guide is basically evidence of who you are and what you're capable of in print form. So, for example, back in the day, if I did a documentary project, let's say that it was late 90s or even mid 90s when I was at the newspaper. When I worked at the newspaper, I had a credential around my neck. And you'd show up somewhere. People would say, who are you? You got cameras hanging off your shoulders. Oh, I'm Dan Milner. I work for such and such a paper. Oh, wow, that's great. You're with the paper. Wow. And they'd like tell their friends, hey, he's from the paper. And they would proceed to open up their lives to you in a way that was mind-blowing. I mean, I saw people in like criminal activity who were like, oh, hey, come on in. You're with the paper? Great. Come on in. I'd be like, no, you don't want me in your photograph. You're like you know, <laughs> doing criminal things. But over the years, every year it's gotten harder and harder because with the advent of the internet, and social media has made it exponentially worse, is that people assume when you're in the field, they assume a couple of things. They assume that whatever you're making is going to immediately be online and immediately be in front of the world. And the second thing they assume is that you're getting rich off of them. 
And so I can't tell you how many times over the past decade I've been working on projects and people are like, no, you can't be here. You're getting rich off of us. Not only do they not understand economics of photography, but when you tell them, look, I'm not only not getting rich, I'm losing money on this project because I'm paying for it myself. It actually makes it harder. They're even more in disbelief that you would be out there. And that's not just the people in the photographs. That's the police. That's the Border Patrol. That's ATF. That's every other law enforcement organization I've run into. If you're working on your own, it's very difficult to get access now. So one of the things that I realized was when people say, who are you and what are you doing? If I try to explain a conceptual art project to somebody in a small town in New Mexico, and I have a very brief moment to try to get access with them, if I try to explain that, they just look at me like, what are you talking about? So what I say is, oh, this is what I'm doing. And I hand them a printed field guide from the project. It's the previous work that I've built on the project. It has copy. It has images. It's beautifully designed. It looks like an actual, it's a real magazine. And so I typically use magazine format. I think that's the most effective. It's inexpensive. It looks beautiful. And it is evidence that I am not a looky-loo. It is evidence that I am not an Instagrammer because they've burned so many bridges. It's unbelievable because they show up, they take, and they leave. And then people are like, you know, God, I can't believe it. There was another article today about a place in New Zealand, a piece of private property that's just overrun by people who keep, you know, going over the fences and ignoring the signs and all ambling in there to try to get an Instagram photo. And so when you put a printed piece in front of people, they stop what they're doing and they have to confront the printed piece. They have to handle it. And that I found is incredibly effective because people will look at it and they'll say, oh, my God, you did this. This is yours. This is your story. Are you going to do this with us? And I'm like, yeah, that's the point is I'm trying to prove to you that I'm not a looking blue, that I'm trying to do something that's a little more in depth, that I have a personal relationship with this. It's not for social media. There's no personal gain for me per se, because again, I'm paying for it myself and it's just a project that I'm interested in. But I've had some really funny run-ins with law enforcement over the last 20 years where they just could not comprehend that I would like go to the border by myself and work on a project that I was losing money on in an area that could be safe, might not be so safe, might be some weird stuff happening. And they're like, no, 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 just doesn't compute. Because, you know, they were like, they're not going to do that. So it's been fun. But the printed guides are a blast to make. I think it's also really helpful as a photographer to take stock of what you have and then try to make sense of it. Because inevitably, when you make a field guide, you'll see the holes in your work immediately because you're starting to lay this thing out and design it. And you go, oh, no, I don't have like this image. I don't have this image. I need a transitional image here. I need a portrait here. I've got to get better copy here. It just shows you really, in essence, what you don't have yet. And that's a really helpful thing when you're building a project. Premium members of PhotoBiz Exposed hear more of the best photography business strategies from every guest. That'll keep you busy for a while. Excellent. And then just to finish off, it was Eric. How did you spell Eric's last name? You mentioned him earlier that you said we should check him out. I don't know if he even has any work online. His last name is Labastida, L-A-B-A-S-T-I-D-A. Eric Labastida. And Eric is a unique dude. We used to work on the border together. And he lived in San Diego. And there was another Eric, too. So there were two Eric's in me. And Eric and I would go and work on the border. We would park on the U.S. side. We would walk into Tijuana and we would shoot. And Eric spent probably a decade doing this on his own. He would go into Tijuana and he would make these unbelievable documentary slash street images in the city. And it's a funny story about him. 
Eric went to this photo-related event here in the United States, which is a very important event if you're in the photojournalism world. And they have a competition, and he won this competition or won part of the competition. And, you know, Eric is like the most unassuming person when it comes to his own photography. He's a purist. He just does it because he has to do it. He doesn't really do it for accolades or anything else. And Magnum was like, you should submit, you know, you should submit your work to us. And Eric's like, nah, you know, (laughs) not into it. And I was like, I think maybe you're the only person I know who ever said, you know, to Magnum, eh, not really interested. (laughs) I was like, I was like, maybe you rethink that one. Maybe you submit. Like, and what's ironic is me telling him to submit. Yes, yes. It wasn't lost. (laughs) No. Yeah, his work in Tijuana was really solid. Unreal. Yeah. Dan, again, mate, you've been a true gentleman. I'm so glad I found you online and looking forward to learning more and following along and seeing what you put out in the future. I'll add links to anything in the show notes. Massive thanks again, mate. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Love talking with you. Love Australia. And I hope you guys do well here in the near future and uh, always happy to talk. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan as much as I did. Dan, if you're listening, again, mate, thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything you did. I'm a big fan of what you say, what you believe in, what you preach. I'm looking forward to to seeing more of your stuff on YouTube as you put it out. And for you, the listener, I hope you feel the same way. I hope you enjoyed what Dan had to share. I hope hope some of the things he shared hit home for you, made you or, or had you stop and thinking about your life, your business, your photography, your creativity, even the legacy that you're looking to leave. If you want to continue the conversation, I would love to. If you are a premium member, let's do that inside the members Facebook group. Uh, I don't think Dan will be in there because I don't believe he has a Facebook account. He's certainly not active like he mentioned in the interview, but we can go on and talk more about what he shared there inside the Facebook group. And of course, if you are listening to the free version of the podcast, you can leave a comment in the comments area. I'll make sure that Dan gets back and sees that or those if you do leave them. The comments area, which are in the show notes, are at photobizx.com forward slash 374. Now in those show notes, I've also got links to anything and everyone (laughs) that Dan mentioned in the interview. I've also got examples of his work, his black and white photography work, and links to anything else that I've mentioned or will be mentioning in this episode of the podcast. It's all there in the show notes at photobizx.com forward slash 374. You're listening to the number one photography business podcast with Andrew Helmich, photobizx.com. On the topic of announcements, I did mention briefly last week that the Photography Pricing Masterclass with Photography Business and Mindset Coach Joel Dunn is happening later this month. In fact, it's going to be on the 25th of August at 7 a.m. Australian Eastern Time. We are all good to go with that training. Well, Joel is. <laughs> He's the one that's going to be delivering the training. I'm going to be there facilitating the session, the live Zoom session. I'll be putting your questions to him You'll have a chance to go on and ask him your specific questions as well throughout that training. Also included with that training is access to the recordings. There are bonus interviews with a couple of Joel's clients who have already implemented what he's suggesting and talking about with his pricing strategies and are absolutely killing it. You also get a one-on-one call to discuss your pricing with Joel if you are one of the early bird registrants. 
I think that's the right word, isn't it? Registrants. If you're the first, one of the first people to register for the course, you'll be entitled to one of those one-on-one calls with Joel. Plus, you're going to get access to any future iterations of the course. So once the course has been delivered by Joel, I'm going to move it onto the PhotoBizX website. I'll be adding those additional interviews. There'll be other resources. It'll all be there in that one place and housed on the PhotoBizX.com website. So you'll have access to anything that happens inside that course and new content that gets added. But you do have to be registered for that live call, whether or not you can make it, to get that one-on-one call to discuss your pricing with Joel. That is for the early bird participants only. Now, to register and to find out more about the live call, the training, head over to photobizx.com forward slash pricing. Super simple, photobizx.com forward slash pricing. You'll have more details there. And of course, you can ask me about it inside the members Facebook group. I'll, um, I'll make sure Joel sees any questions you have for him there. And once you are registered for the live training, I'll add you into, I'll give you details to join the, uh, the private Facebook group for course participants so we can all stay on track and rebuild our price list for profit, get feedback from each other, have feedback and help from Joel inside that group after the training. And yeah, the idea is you create a more profitable price list that, that naturally leads your clients to the kind of products that you want to be selling at the kind of profit that you want to be generating from your business. So photobizx.com forward slash pricing if you want more details about that. Photobiz Exposed. Interviews with photographers to help you build a better photography business. A couple of other quick announcements before we close out today's episode. I was interviewed by the lovely ladies from the Pet Photographers Club. I'm talking about Caitlin McColl and Kirsty McConnell a couple of weeks ago for their podcast. If you're interested in checking that out, I've got a link in the show notes. Or if you subscribe to the Pet Photographers Club podcast, you will see that pop up there with me. I was talking all about video and utilizing video in your business. And we shared a bunch of tips on how you can do that easily which also led me to talk about the daily vlog challenge. And again, that is open for registration right now. The next challenge is kicking off later this month. If you want to get involved with that, if you want to get more comfortable being yourself on video, head over to dailyvlogchallenge.com. Come and join us in the next 30-day challenge. The early bird pricing is still available for that. It's only $47. It's a three-week challenge. You need to dedicate or allocate about 15 to 30 minutes a day for the mid-week days (laughs) for a three-week period. And you will be amazed at the progress you make if you want to be including video as part of your marketing and advertising, whether it's using video for email replies to client inquiries, using video in your social media, using video as part of your marketing and advertising campaigns or just having video on your website. We're going to cover exactly how to do all those things plus more in that three-week challenge, and we do it in little bite-sized chunks so you get better and better over that three-week period in a real seamless and painless way that is actually a lot of fun, and I can promise you will be a changed person after that three weeks, plus you'll have a bunch of brand-new friends from around the world who will have shared the same experience as you. So dailyvlogchallenge.com if you want more information about that. Alrighty, that is it for this episode of the podcast. I hope you have an amazing week ahead. I hope you are staying safe, healthy, and well. 
Big shout out again to Dan Milnor, and I look forward to chatting to you inside the members Facebook group if you're a premium member. Otherwise, I'll chat to you next week in the podcast. All right, have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. If you have enjoyed this episode, head to photobizx.com. Join the conversation, leave a comment and share your thoughts on the interview with Andrew and today's special guest. 